Tonight, tonight we are continuing on in our, uh, our talk about the spiritual disciplines, and tonight we're talking about the discipline of worship, of worship. And what I want to do is I want us to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 5, and, and what I want to do is really just kind of paint a picture of what's happening in heaven right now. And uh, I want us to get a picture of, of worship in heaven and how that might apply to us. So Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. And it says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof, and beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us unto God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Amen. Church, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are worthy. God, we thank you. Lord, there is none above you. Lord, there is no competition. God, you reign supreme and you reign alone. God, you are, you are the Holy One. And Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this night. We thank you, Lord, for all that you want to speak to us. Lord, that you would use me, pour into me so I could be poured out to this congregation. And Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. You can be seated. I wanted to read that because that's a picture of what's happening in heaven. We see this scene that John the Revelator had where God let him have this vision. And in this vision, he starts showing us what is happening. He says, around the throne, he says, there's 10,000 times 10,000 angels. Now, I did the math. That is 100 million. In other words, he's saying, there were so many you couldn't count them. He said, all the heavenly hosts stood to attention and began to sing a song. And what are they doing? They are singing the same song. Not one of them are singing about themselves. No one, none, of, none of them are singing about their own agenda. They're all singing the same song. And they're bowing down. And what are they saying? They're saying, you are worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. None of them. None of them are singing about themselves. 
Now, when I read this, I began to think about what Jesus did for his disciples. Remember, there's a time in the Gospels where the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And so he says, okay, and he gives us the model prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so then we get to that phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, here in this moment, we get a picture about what's happening in heaven. And what are they doing? They're singing about Jesus. And they're singing, you are worthy. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. And I think about that prayer when he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what are we saying in that prayer? We're saying, God, we want to join in with what's happening in heaven. We want a piece of that here on earth. And so, God, we want to join in with all the angelic beings and all the angelic hosts. And we say, you are holy. You are worthy. Worthy are you. We want to be in harmony with heaven. We don't want to be in harmony with the world. Does that make sense? And so that is the picture of what's happening. Everyone in the world, I don't know if you noticed this, but the song they're singing, they're singing here on this earth, it's all about them. They're singing their name. They're singing about their rights and their truths and how they want to be treated. And no one can tell me how to live my life. But then you look at a picture of heaven and they're saying, worthy is the lamb. And so what, if we're going to have a proper stance in worship, then we have to come in the same position as those angelic beings and saying, worthy is the Lamb. Because He is the only one able to take the scroll. What is the scroll? It is the deed to the earth. And when He opens that scroll, everything that's in opposition to Him will be destroyed. And so you are the only one that that can do this, God. You are worthy. Now imagine out of that hundred million angelic hosts that are around that throne, if one of them came loose and said, you know what? We've been singing this song a long time. Is there a new song that we can sing? Anybody know any Gaither vocal band stuff? Anybody, anybody know Old Rugged Cross? Uh, can, can we sing a new song? We've been singing this one for a long time. No, they weren't like that. They didn't care they sang the same song over and over again because it was a tr- song of truth. Yes. Worthy is the Lamb. Now, in churches today, I think it's very dangerous when we start catering to people. Because people have their own opinions. And they, they have what they like, and they, they'll come to you and say, I want it this way. But we aren't supposed to be in harmony with people. We need to be in harmony with heaven. Matter of fact, Jesus talks about this in John chapter 15. You should have some of these verses in your handout, but in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. You were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hateth you. So we see there's two songs being sung today. There is the song of the world. And and God says to be in friendship with the world is to be with enmity with him. And so we have two songs. We have the song of the world. It's all about me. It's all about my wants. It's all about my truth. It's all about how I want to be treated. It's all about whatever. And then we have the song of heaven, which is saying, God, you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. Now, if you're trying to sing two songs at the same time. There's not a whole lot of harmony in there, is there? If, if I was to get one, somebody up here and sing uh, uh, Amazing Grace, and while they're singing Amazing Grace, I start ripping on Freebird. Yeah, it, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't go together, would it? But honestly, that's how some of us have lived our life. I remember when I was a high, in high school, I was a new Christian. I was a new Christian. And, and I was trying to live two songs at the same time. I was trying to sing the song of the world, 
But I was also trying to sing the song, God, you are worthy. And the problem is there's not harmony there. And so real worship is when you come to a place and you begin to ascribe worth to God, that you don't make the church service about you. I've had people come up to me and say, I didn't like the worship today. And if I was a deacon, I would have told them exactly what I thought in that moment. But being on staff, you can't do that kind of stuff. But they said, I, I didn't like the worship today. And what I wanted to say, well, good, it wasn't about you anyways. But I didn't. I refrained. So how in our life do we create a more pursuit of worship? I'm going to be honest with you. Worship is more than a song. We, we, we have a worship pastor. We have worship music. But worship is bigger than a song. Worship is about how you live. Worship is about what you know about God. So here's the thing. If we added more time for music, that doesn't mean we're worshiping. If we added more lines to the songs, I love contemporary Christian music, but there's some contemporary artists, man. They add 23 verses to a, to a song, and that song lasts 15 minutes. I'm thinking, y'all got to land this plane sometime. Yeah. Just because you add more lyrics doesn't mean it's more worshipful. So how do you create more worship in the church and in the lives of those who attend church? Because here's the thing. Worship is not created by the content. Worship is created by your knowledge of God. It begins in your knowledge of God. Worship is a mental experience that moves the emotions. Worship is not an emotional experience alone. A lot of people say, worship was good today. Well, tell me about it. Well, I just cried and cried and cried. We just got emotional. See, your, your mental understanding of who God is is what moves your emotions. It's what it, it informs your worship. Truth informs and increases your worship. Matter of fact, Jesus talks about this. He has a conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well. And they're going back and forth about worship. She's saying, hey, I know the Jews worship in this mountain. The Samaritans worship in this mountain. And they're having a discussion about worship. And so in John chapter 4, verse 21 through 22... It says, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when neither, or when you shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship what you know not, but we know what we worship for salvation of the Jews. So here's the difference between real worship, false worship, and true worship. False worship is all emotion without knowledge. He says, You don't worship what you know. We know what we worship. False wor- worship is all about the emotion. Without knowledge, without understanding, just because you were moved, just because you got chill bumps, just because you cried a lot doesn't mean it was worship. How many of you cried because you lost your keys? I mean, how many of you cried because you hit your hand with a hammer? All right. Just because that wasn't worship. That was an emotional response to what happened. Just because you get emotional doesn't mean it's worship. True worship is based on knowledge. Look again in John chapter four, verse twenty three and twenty four. He says, but the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So the Samaritans, what was happening, Samaritans were worshiping in all emotion without truth. But the Jews were worshiping in all truth without emotion. So they were both kind of wrong. And there's a difference between your soul and your spirit. Your soul is the seat of your emotions, your passions, your thoughts, your desires. That's, where you, that's your soul. 
Your spirit is the seed of your faith, your hope, your love, your character, your perseverance. And so when he says you worship in spirit and truth, he says you give all your faith, hope, love, character, perseverance in truth to him in worship. So what is real worship? What is worship? If we're going to practice the discipline of worship, how can we be better practitioners in worship? Number one. Worship is focusing on and responding to God. Focusing on and responding to God. To worship God correctly, you have to know Him correctly. Your knowledge is what's going to increase your worship. The more you know about Him, the more about His revelation you understand, the more informed your worship will be. The word worship comes from an old Saxon word, worthship. Worthship. All right, you hear the word worth in there? And so worship is basically you are ascribing uh, worth to God. You are saying you are worthy. You're magnifying his worthiness. You're magnifying him through praise. And so you approach God because he is worthy. It's all about him. He has all the authority. When we worship, we are acknowledging him. If you have a limited understanding of who God is, then your worship will be anemic. It will be weak. But if you have a rich understanding of who God is, then you will have a rich kind of worship. Your knowledge, listen to me, your knowledge is what strengthens your worship. It's not the music. It's not the style. It's not the song. It's your knowledge. A lot of churches today, I see them giving more time to the music than they are given to the preaching. And that's completely backwards. Now, I'm not advocating that we do one song on Sundays and then Pastor Malcolm preaches for an hour. He's going to preach for an hour and a half whether we have five songs or not. But I'm not advocating that we do away with music and we just have straight up preaching. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is it is through your knowledge and understanding of God's word that will increase your knowledge of who God is, which will then spur you to worship him. It will motivate you to worship him. Your knowledge is what increases your worship. On the other hand, on the other hand, I've been a part of churches that got it all wrong. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Malcolm did a phenomenal message about knowing who your enemy is. He says, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Right? And I was a part of this church that uh, they removed the drum kit from the stage. And the pastor preached a message. He says, the drums are evil. He says, if there's a drum beat that matches the rhythm of the human heart then you are worshiping in the flesh and not in the spirit. Now, I was a young Christian at that time, but I still know what manure smells like. <laughs> and in that moment, I was thinking, this guy is so wrong. He was attacking the drum set. The enemy wasn't the drum kit. The enemy against our worship is being ignorant of God's word. If you're ignorant of God's word, it will affect your worship. You can have every instrument on here as well. It's not going to increase your worship. It is your knowledge of God's word. It's responding and knowing him. The more we know and focus on God, the more we understand and appreciate how worthy he is. And as we understand this, we cannot help but to worship him. And so as we sing these songs, we begin to be reminded of who God is and it begins to spur within us all those things he has done for us. And we begin to increase our worship to him because we've experienced and known God in real ways. And so the music just becomes a vehicle of our worship, but it's not the end to our worship. 
It is the means to worship, but not the end to worship. It is the knowledge we have of God, the understanding of God's word that becomes the motivator for our worship. That's why when we read the book of Revelation and we see all these creatures and all these angelic beings around the throne worshiping God, they're falling on their faces before him. They are so close to him. And all they can do is cry out, holy, holy, holy. So worship is responding and focusing on God. But here's the problem. Those angelic beings were in the very presence of God. It's easy to worship God when you're in his presence, right? So how has God revealed himself to us today? How has God made himself known to us today in the way that we can worship him? I'm going to give you two Two ways he's revealed himself. Number one, through general revelation. That would be A, general revelation. You have a definition there on your paper. General revelation is the knowledge of God's existence, character, and moral law, which comes through, cre- comes through creation to all humanity. Let me explain that. Every single person who has ever existed has knowledge that God exists. They do. God has made himself known to all creation, to all humanity in general ways. Matter of fact, Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, verse 25, he says, You changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In other words, what they're taking is they're taking the sun and the moon and the stars and they're worshiping it rather than the creator. And so through general revelation, God has revealed himself in three ways. Let me give you three ways God has revealed himself in a general way to all of humanity. Number one, the human conscience. The human conscience. All people have an understanding of God's moral law. Now, would you be in agreement with me that our world's kind of messed up right now? There's a lot of evil. There's, there's a lot of demonic activity. There's a lot of evil in our world today. But I want you to understand, what if God's moral code was removed from all humanity? Imagine how unhinged humanity would be then. Imagine how violent humanity would be then. Because the human conscience, it prohibits us from doing certain things. Because we know what right and wrong is. Listen, in Genesis, it says that God created man in his image. That doesn't mean that we, could look, we look like him. What he's saying is in man, he has given them something different than all the other creatures. In man, he's given them creativity. In man, he's given them superiority over all creation. Remember, he put Adam in charge of all creation. So in man, he's given superiority over all creation. In man, he's given him a conscience and a moral code. That makes us different than all other creatures. And so God's fingerprint on humanity is our morality, our conscience. You're thinking, how do I know there's morality in people? Because if you go to the deepest, darkest jungle and you find someone who's never held a Bible, never met a missionary, never heard the name Jesus, and you start watching their social life, even they have an understanding of right and wrong. They know it's wrong to kill. They know it's wrong to steal. They know it's wrong to rape. Now, who told them that? Is written on the human conscience. That's God's autograph on humanity. I created you different and special. And so in all humanity, he has revealed himself in a general way that, hey, I exist because in you, you have a sense of right and wrong. Does that make sense? 
So he's revealed himself to humanity in a general way through the human conscience, but also through creation. Through creation. The psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God. Listen, I went to, uh, I went to Mark Powell's house not long ago, and I was standing in his backyard, and I was looking at his little pasture behind his house, and it was surrounded by these trees, and there's, little, there's baby calves and mama cows out there, and it was beautiful. The sun was setting behind the trees, and the sky was lit up with, like, orange and pink and red. I mean, it was beautiful. Something like Bob Ross with paint, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was beautiful. And I remember in that moment just commenting, man, this is beautiful. And, and, and I, I, I'll be honest with you, there's times when I go to Tracy's mom and dad's house and I go out in their front yard. They have, I don't know what it is about their house, but I think they're closer to heaven there or something because the stars shine brighter, the sky is clear. Man, the stars seem like they're closer. And I remember going in her parents' yard multiple times at night and just staring up at the night sky. What is, what is creation saying at that time? It's saying God exists. God is real. God is here. Again, if you was to go to an unreached people group who's never heard the gospel, never seen a Bible, never seen a missionary, they are worshiping something. There's something in them that's causing them to worship. Why? Because they look at creation and the only thing they can say is there's something bigger than me. There's something that put this into motion. I don't know what it is. And so that's why they begin to worship the moon and the stars and the animals, because they look at creation, and creation testifies God exists. God is real. And so God has revealed himself in a general way through creation, but also thirdly, through history. Through history. We can see God's fingerprints all over history. His His direct influence all over history, specifically of the people of Israel. That little bitty old nation has been in so many wars has been trying to be blown off the map so many times, has been enslaved. Man, you had, you had people in power trying to completely wipe out the Jewish people completely. That little nation has been the focus of so much hostility, yet they still survive. Why? Because we see God's hand through history directly influencing them and providing for them and saving them and, and, and reaffirming them and, and, and restoring them over and over. So we see God revealing himself through history. Now, the problem with general revelation, the problem, now I'm getting somewhere. Y'all don't click out yet because we're talking about worship and you're thinking, how is this dealing with worship? We're going to get there, I promise. The problem with general revelation is that there's not enough information for a person who is not saved to look at something God has done in a general way and get saved. In other words, in other words, if a person looks at a sunrise, is there enough information in that sunrise for that person to be like, I need to get right with God. I confess all my sins. I'm going to repent and trust Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. No. There's not enough information in creation for a person to get saved. There's enough information in creation for that person to say, there's a God. But there's not enough for them to get saved. And so God has also revealed himself in another way called special revelation. Special revelation. This is a supernatural communication from God that was given to humanity. God's special revelation comes in two ways. Number one, and most importantly, His Word. His Word. God's Word. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, 
hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So in time past, before the scriptures were completed, God revealed his redemptive plan to prophets through dreams, through visions, through theophanies. Theophanies are just Old Testament appearances of God in a tangible way. So God made himself real to prophets through visions, dreams, and theophanies. But now, special revelation has received its permanent home in the completed scriptures. The Old Testament and New Testament is the special revelation of God to humanity. So let me ask you this. If a person was to go to a hotel room and they pull out a Gideon Bible out of the nightstand and they begin to open it and begin to read that Gideon Bible, is there enough information in that Bible for that person to get saved, know Jesus Christ, and turn their life over to Him? Absolutely. That's the difference between general revelation. General revelation says there's a God. Special revelation says, and here's how you can know me personally. All right. So He reveals Himself to us through His Word, and also through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the second way, through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, 8 through 10, it says, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Jesus is saying, I am the special revelation of God. I am God in the flesh. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Right? He is, the, he is God in the flesh. The special revelation of God. Now, these two forms of revelation, the special revelation and general revelation, for an unbeliever, we understand general revelation says God exists. Special revelation says here's how you can know God personally. But what does this mean for our worship as a believer? As a believer, someone who knows God. How does general and special revelation motivate us in our worship? Have you ever looked at a sunset? You can't help but have a moment of spontaneous worship when you look at God's creation and you think of His beauty. God is revealing to you in such a plain way, I'm here. I'm with you. And so that motivates our worship as we're around creation. Hey, there's times when you open the Word of God, which is His special revelation. And His Word motivates us. It inspires us. And as you're reading and understanding God's Word, His special revelation, what happens is that the Holy Spirit that was in you, it begins to open your eyes, begins to reveal things to you that you've never seen before. And when that happens, you can't help but worship. It motivates you to worship. And so God has shown himself, I'm here. And then he shows you, and I want you to know me. And as a believer in Christ, that should motivate our hearts to worship. To worship God means that we know him and respond to him. Let me just give you a warning, though. (laughs) If we know that worship is focusing on and responding to God then it doesn't matter what you're doing. If your focus is not on God, then you're not worshiping. So example, if you come to church on Sunday and you fall asleep in your seat, you ain't worshiping. All right, if you have a tendency, like I know there's people that are narcoleptic and they can't help it. 
But if you ain't narcoleptic, drink a Red Bull. All right. Get energized before you get a good eight hours of sleep before you come to church, because even though you're in the church building doesn't mean you're worshiping. Listen, you can be sitting there singing a song and the song lyrics are holy, holy, holy. But if all you're thinking is I'm hungry, 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 then you're not worshiping, are you? If you're thinking about the Mexican restaurant you're going to go to after church is over, you're not worshiping. Worship means you're focusing in on and responding to God. I think we've all been guilty of having a wandering mind sometimes when we're here at church. Listen, just because you're here doesn't mean you're worshiping. Worship means you respond to God. Number two, worship is done in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. Again, going back to Samaritan woman and the conversation they had in John chapter 4, Verse 23 and 24, it says, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Before we can worship God in spirit and in truth, we have to have the one who is the spirit of truth in us, who is the Holy Spirit. You will not be able to worship effectively and wholly and truthfully apart from the Holy Ghost. You cannot be a lost person worshiping God. It is the Holy Spirit in you that enables you to worship Him in spirit and truth. How do I know this? Well, John fourteen seventeen says, Even the Spirit of truth, there's that word, the Spirit of truth, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him, but you know Him. Why? Because He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. The Spirit of truth is in you. It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what motivates us, empowers us to worship Him. Now, now we need to know that even though the Holy Spirit causes us to worship God correctly, we also need to know that the Spirit isn't going to worship anything that isn't truth. It says we're going to worship in spirit and truth. The Spirit's not going to worship anything that isn't truth. That's why there's sometimes, at least in my own personal life, I've listened to songs, worship songs, and it just didn't sit right in my spirit. Like something just... There is an old country gospel song called Drop Kick Me Jesus. Y'all, y'all may have heard that song. Drop kick me Jesus through the goalpost of life. I've got the will, Lord, if you've got the toe. All right, have you ever heard that? That's a legitimate song. All right. I heard that song, and I'm like, yeah, drop. Wait, what? Something in my spirit was not settled with that song. But there's also been times I've listened to sermons. And there's something in my spirit that just wouldn't let me worship because something was amiss. Maybe verses were out of context. Maybe there was an agenda trying to be reached, but there was something. Maybe there's a, I just, have you ever experienced that before? Listen, here's the thing. Your spirit's not going to worship anything that's not truth. That's why we are very, very diligent here at Temple that anything we preach and anything we sing is filled with truth. Because it motivates our spirit to worship him. Our spirit will move our emotions and cause us to come to a place of worship. Now listen, just because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you doesn't mean that you're going to be worshiping all the time. There's been many, many times I've come to church and I've raised my hand in a worship service, but I was covering my heart in shame. Maybe because of unconfessed sin, maybe because of bitterness, unforgiveness, whatever it is. I might be worshiping like this, but just because I have the Holy Spirit in me doesn't mean I was actually worshiping. It was all a show. 
How many times have you come to church? Maybe, you, maybe I'm alone in this. I don't know. But how many times have you come to church and you see other people worshiping? You see other people being moved. You see people coming down to the altar and you're watching them and you ask yourself, why am I? I, I don't feel that. Am I broken? Is there something wrong with me? Maybe that's just something I've asked myself before, but I've been in situations where I, I, I was just watching others and feeling envious of their worship. And many times what that happens is that comes down to the fact that our heart is not plugged in. And if there's no, if our heart's not plugged into God, then there's no electricity for worship. When our love for God is dead, then our worship is dead as well. Let, let me give you an example. <laughs> My anniversary, my wedding anniversary is July 29th. I'll be married 17 years this year. Yeah, that's an accomplishment, I think. If I come home on July 29th with a dozen red roses and I give them to my beautiful bride, and she's, I know what she's going to do. She's going to take them. She's going to smell them. She's going to oh, this is so beautiful. And she's going to give me a big old hug and a big old kiss. And I pat her on the back and I say, don't worry, it's my duty. What just happened? <laughs> I've just, I just changed sleeping arrangements, right? In that moment, if I said, don't worry, it's my duty, I have sucked all the meaning out of that gesture, didn't I? Because if that gesture was not motivated by a spontaneous love for my wife, it was not motivated by spontaneous affection for my wife, then it was just a, a check mark, like, okay, got to buy roses because of my anniversary. And that was the only reason. Then there was no love behind it. There was no affection behind it. It is empty. And so, honestly, that's how our worship can be sometimes. It's a checklist. It's a chore. It's something that we do. And that's why we need to return to what David said in Psalm 37, 4, where he says, Delight thyself also into the Lord. He says we need to get to a place where we delight in the Lord. If my worship is connected to my heart and is connected to my knowledge of God, then I will experience meaningful worship. But if my worship is simply just something I do because I have to or because it's become a religious activity, then it becomes nothing more than a performance. And let me be honest with you, God can see right through your performance. It becomes as meaningless as those roses. But let's be honest, there are times where you're doing all the right things. Man, you're, you're trying to read your Bible, you're trying to have a steady prayer time, you're, you're, you're doing all the right things, and there's still like this dryness in your worship. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I have. I just felt like I was not trying to go through the motions, but I felt like I was going through the motions, but I was really sincere in what I was trying to do. What happens in those times? Do we just give up? No. No. Why? Because your breakthrough might be right around the corner. You might give up way too soon. We must remember even our best worship is a little imperfect because we're imperfect people. But we have to, we have to keep pushing in. Let me ask you a question. Out there, Fairview, in here in this room... Has there ever been a time where you woke up and said, I don't really want to go to church today? Uh, maybe you feel a little sick. Maybe you feel a little tired. Maybe you have a busy weekend. Maybe there's a lot of chores you got to get done. You think, I don't really want to go to church today. But you motivate yourself to go anyways. Has anybody ever done that before? And how many of you, when you motivated yourself to go anyways, even though you didn't want to, you get to church and your socks get blessed off? Yeah. I mean, you get restored and refreshed and there's a, there's a peace and a joy that floods into your life. And all of a sudden you think, man, I'm glad I came to church today. Now, what would have happened if you would have gave up and gave in and stayed at home? 
you would have missed out. You would have missed out. So many of us are so close to our breakthrough in our worship. Don't give up. Let me read to you Psalm chapter 1. In Psalm chapter 1, it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So this psalmist is speaking about an individual that's doing everything right. He's not hanging out with sinners. He's not doing sinful things. It says he's meditating in the law day and night. What is the law? It's it's God's word. And he's studying God's word. He's meditating on it. He's increasing his knowledge of God. And it says that he will be like a tree planted by by rivers of water that will bring forth his fruit in his season. Now, I read that and something stuck out to me. This is a man doing everything right, reading his Bible, doing all the right things, living a righteous lifestyle. But it says he's not going to bring fruit until it's his season. In other words, there's seasons in his life. There's no fruit. Do you know you could be doing all the right things and still go through a season of just feeling dry? Feeling kind of empty? You can go through those dry seasons, those cold seasons, those windy seasons, those hard seasons. But if you keep going, you will see your fruit. There will be fruit that comes when it is your season. And you'll be thankful that you didn't give up and give in way back when. And you kept showing up. You keep getting your Bible. You keep doing the right things. You keep showing up at church. You keep doing everything you know you need to be doing. Because there's coming a time you will reap the reward of your efforts. You will bring forth fruit in your season. Number three, worship. Worship is expected publicly and privately. When it comes to our worship, there is an expectation that we are doing it publicly and privately. As believers in Christ, there is an expectation. I'm preaching to the choir right now, but there is an expectation you show up to church. It don't have to be temple, but it has to be church. Corporate worship, public corporate worship. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. That's kind of our go-to verse for a lot of this. But Hebrews 10, 25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Christianity is not a religion you practice in isolation. You need each other. Matter of fact, in the New Testament alone, there's over 50 times it's mentioned one another. One another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Edify one another. Exhort one another. You need each other. And when this was written, let me say this too. In the New Testament, the church is described as a building, as a body, and a household. In other words, you are one piece to a greater whole. That is what the church is. You can't do this by yourself. You belong to a body. You belong to a building. You belong to a household of believers. So we need corporate public worship and, and, and here's the thing, the Hebrew writers, when he wrote this, there was no other way to interpret this other than what he was talking about. He was talking about a physical gathering of believers, a physical assembling of believers. You cannot manipulate this to say, well, watching church online is just the same. No, it ain't. Now, I am thankful. 
Hear me out. I am thankful we have online capabilities. I'm thankful that we are able to broadcast to thousands of people because there's people who absolutely need it. They're, they're homebound. They're sick. They're, they're elderly. Maybe they're traveling and they're here most of the time, but now they're going off for a weekend, but they get to still tune in. I think it's, I think it's so important that we have that for that purpose right there. But if your only means of church is simply by watching it online, I'm telling you, it is a terrible substitute for the real thing. I'm thankful that we have it, but it's a terrible substitute because God says you need to be in the building with other believers. We are expected to meet and worship publicly. You might have, you might say, listen, I can worship just as good on a bass boat as I can in the church. Listen, first of all, Jesus died for this church. Jesus died for his bride. And to say that you don't need his bride is a slap in his face. And I don't think I'd be saying something like that. But I want to tell you right now, you might have the most dynamic prayer life there ever has been. You might have the most dynamic Bible devotion time you've ever had. You might have dynamic private uh, uh, just getting alone with God. Listen, you still need corporate worship. You still need each other. There's an element of being here that you can't get online. How many times have you come to church And you've been here and God has poured out his blessing in this church. And how many times have has God showed up in powerful ways in this church? And how many times has God brought dead bones back to life again in this church? How many times has God restored marriages in this church? How many times has God brought dead people back to life again in this church? You need the church. You need public worship and assembling together. You can't do this in isolation. You need the church. There is no substitute. But with that, it doesn't exempt you from having a private worship. You need the church, but you also need your private worship with God. No matter how fulfilling this is, man, we have a great church, we have a great preacher, we have a great music program. No matter how fulfilling this is here, you still need your alone time with God privately. Multiple times, Jesus would escape the crowd to go get alone with his father. He needed that. How is it possible? How is it possible to worship God publicly only one time a week when we don't worship Him privately throughout the week? If you're struggling in your worship here at church, it might be because your, public, your, your private worship is weak. We can't expect the flames of worship to burn brightly during the week if you're not fanning the flames in your private worship. And so the reason your public worship may be weak is because there is no private worship. Because your private worship will overflow into your public worship. Don't, don't expect to come here on Sunday to get cranked up. You should already be cranked up. You know what I'm saying? You should already be ready. You should, what happens on Sunday should be the overflow of what's been happening during the week. It should just spill over on Sunday. All right, don't come here empty, ready to get filled up. No, be here filled and then let it overflow in the service. Because people need to see you worship too. Last week we talked about fasting. And we talked about how God, how Jesus says, I want you to fast privately and then my Father will reward you openly. Right? We talked about that. And fasting is an act of worship. And I think with all these facets of worship, there's an element where if you do something privately and secretly, God will bless it openly. Every time. If you have a faithful private time with God, God will bless you openly and publicly. And we rob ourselves if we neglect a daily worship time with God. If you're not getting alone with God, you're robbing yourself. One of the greatest blessings that we have 
One of the greatest blessings we have is God has given us unlimited access to Him 24-7, 365. We can go to Him anytime we want to. We can come to Him. How often? Let me ask you, church. Let me ask you, Fairview. How often do you need encouragement? How often do you need peace? How often do you need some joy in your life? How often could you use some guidance in your life? Would it be daily? Then how often should we be getting alone with God? Daily. And the Lord Jesus is willing to meet with you privately for as long as you want. Imagine this. I like to use my imagination. I was a youth pastor for a long time. I use my imagination a lot. Imagine you were alive during the time of Jesus. And one day you're at your home and you hear a knock on your door. And you open the door and it's one of Jesus' disciples. He says, hey, the master sent me to get you. He's, uh, he wanted me to let you know that he wants to meet with you alone. And uh, whenever you're willing and for however long you want to, he wants to talk with you. And as a matter of fact, he told me to let you know he's, he's expecting you every day. Now, how many of y'all would respond to that invitation? You would be over the moon with that kind of invitation, right? Here's the reality, folks. You can. Jesus wants to meet with you daily for as long as you want to talk about anything you want to. The invitation is right now. You can approach him anytime. Jesus is not only wanting to meet with you, but he's expecting you. And this is the reality of our worship. That he wants to meet with you. Not just publicly, but privately. How awesome is that? Think, think of worship this way. How many of y'all have kids? How many, how many of y'all have kids? How many of you have your kids, when they were growing up, they would dress up in costumes, superheroes, princesses, anything like that? Any, all right, several of you, several of you. My, my kids would do that. And they, if they dress up like a superhero, you know they're about to go fight some crime. You know what I'm saying? If they're dressed up like a little princess, they're about to dance and have a tea party. You know, that, they, they would, whatever they dressed up as, that's who they would become. I, I, got, a, I got a picture of my kids. Um... Let's see who goes, oh, that's, that's my little Addie Grace. That's probably about five years ago. That's a little Addie. She dressed up like Superwoman. And then all of a sudden around the corner comes my son. Dressed up like Iron Man. Now, on this particular day, uh, I don't know why it's always this way, but in these, in, 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 when they dress up like this as superheroes, I'm always, in, in their playtime, I'm always the bad guy. Tracy's never the bad guy. They don't go after her, They go after me. And so in this particular day, I got my tail whooped by a superwoman and Iron Man. I mean, Carter would climb me like an oak tree, get on top of me, get on my head, yelling out commands to Addy, grab his feet, grab his arms. I heard one time he said, punch him in the stomach. I'm like, punch me in the stomach. And so in this time, they're out there I mean, just having a time of their life. They're pretending to be who they dress up as, right? They, they're emulating what, they, what they, they put their focus. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. When it comes to worship, people become their focus. We emulate what we think about. Little kids, when they dress up like superheroes, they want to be just like a superhero. Teenagers, they, they idolize athletes and they idolize celebrities. And so they dress like them. They, they act like them. They, 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 they follow their fashion sense and all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't just stop in adolescence. Adults who have careers, 
and want to make it to the top, guess what they do? They read the books of the people who've already made it to the top. And they want to emulate what they did. Man, years ago, Rick Warren at Saddleback Church, his church was exploding and growing. And he put out a, a book called Purpose Driven Church. And pastors all over the world ate that book up. Because they're thinking, we want to do what Pastor Rick Warren is doing. We're going to put it in our church. We're going to implement it. We're going to grow it. In other words, they, they, were, they, were, they were trying to focus in on him and try to become like him in order to grow their church. Focusing in on your focus makes you who you are. And if you focus in on the world, it makes you more worldly. If you focus on God, it makes you more godly. And so godliness requires disciplined worship. It requires disciplined worship. We want to be in harmony with what's happening in heaven. As they're gathered around the throne singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And some of you might be thinking, Brother Andrew, I've tried it, man. I've tried being better in my worship. I've tried just doing more. I've tried. It's not working. It's not working. First of all, going through a routine is not the same thing as doing the spiritual disciplines. Just because you check it off doesn't mean you're actually doing it right. Reading the Bible every day doesn't make me godly. I can read Golf Golf Digest. It doesn't make me a pro golfer. Right? It doesn't mean the same thing. Just because you read your Bible, if you're, if you're just doing it out of habit and routine, it's not the same thing. But are you doing it out of an act of worship? God, today I want you to show me something. God, I want to apply something to my life today. And so I'm going to challenge you to do two things. I'm going to challenge you to do two things. Number one, I want to challenge you to talk to a mature Christian. If you're someone who's struggling in some area of your walk... Maybe you have a weak prayer time. Maybe you have a weak Bible devotion time. Maybe your worship is kind of, you know, you don't, you just kind of struggle in that area. Whatever it might be. I want you to find a mature Christian. Maybe it's someone in your own household. Maybe they're sitting right next to you. I don't know. But I want you to find someone and I want you to begin to ask them, what do you do? Tell me about your prayer life. Why, why is it different? Can you, tell me, what, how do you study the Bible? Uh, can, you, can you just help me understand how you study the Bible? Listen, there's nothing wrong with it. Again, over 50 times in the New Testament, it says one another, one another. Proverbs says iron sharpens iron. Over and over again, it says that we need each other. We need each other. We need it. We are the church that we are supposed to help each other in these areas. And so talk to someone that you trust. Talk to someone that you see, man, they, they are thriving in their walk with the Lord. i got to find out what they're doing. So I want to challenge you to do that. There's, there's a story uh, from a guy named Francis Chan. He's an author. He's a pastor. Um, but he tells a story about how he'd go preach at this Christian college every year. He would do their chapel service. And uh, he would go to this chapel service. And before the, the preacher would get up there to preach, before he'd get up there to speak, they would have a worship team doing some worship music. And he began to notice this one young lady on stage. He said something was just different about her worship. I would watch her. And it just looked sincere. It looked genuine. It looked, I don't know, real. And he noticed that for a couple years in a row. And so one year after he finished speaking, he pulled her to the side. And he says, listen, I've been coming for a couple years. And I just watch you. He says, "Uh, your worship is different. And I just want to know, what's your secret? Why? Why is it different? And this young lady looked at him and says, you know, I believe that my God is a creative God. And I, I believe he wants to do something new in my life. And so I just, I'm not satisfied with the same old, same old. And she says, so every day 
I just say, God, show me something new today. God, speak something I've never heard today. God, show me, show me yourself in a way I've never seen before. God, I want to experience you in a way I've never experienced you before. And she said, every day, I just said, God, I want to see something new. I want to read something new. I want to know something new. I want to, I want to be, I just want to experience something fresh. And she says, and I just do that. <laughs> and it overflows in her worship as she begins to understand God and see God in new ways and new facets and new things. All of a sudden it just overflows into her worship. And that's what made it different is that she was pursuing God secretly and privately in her own life. And in those kind of ways where she's saying, God, just show me who you are. So I, I think it's healthy to ask people, what are you doing? What are you doing? The second thing I want to challenge you to do is continue doing your soaps. Remember we talked about soap, the soap Bible study method. S stands for scripture. O stands for observation. A stands for application. And P stands for prayer. All right. And, and so if you do your soap method, I promise you, it will it will show you things. It will motivate you, man. It will empower you. Today, I did my soap in the, on, on Deuteronomy chapter 12. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 8 God is speaking to the nation of Israel. They're about to go into this new promised land. And God tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 8, He says, the way you worship now is going to be different than the way you worship in the new land. He says, there's going to be some changes. And in that moment, God spoke to me, and He reminded me about, Andrew, the way you worshipped 15 years ago is different than how you worship today in this new land. Andrew, how you worshipped last year is different than how you worship now. In other words, God's going to grow you. And God is going to bring you through some, some, some hard times in your life that all of a sudden you, it's going to change the way you worship. I guarantee you the way I worship, you to, uh, worship God today is different because of what I experienced last year with my wife and her battle with leukemia. The way God showed himself to us in that time, the way God was faithful to us during that time, the way God has answered prayer after prayer after prayer during that time, I promise you, it changed the way I worship. I worship differently in 2022 than I do today. Because of what God brought me through. And so I was just doing my soap study in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And I got to verse 8. And God was like, bing. And it blessed my heart. And I began just to write. So I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you, church. You want to see your worship be different? First of all, you got to know this. It is your knowledge of God's word that will empower your worship. If you're weak in this, your worship will be weak. I want to also challenge you to partner up with somebody who's been there, done that. Follow them. Find out what they're doing that's different than you. But thirdly, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to continue doing your soap study. Don't give up on that. Don't give up on that. Keep doing all the right things. Why? Because there's coming a season where you'll see the fruit of it. And so keep showing up. Keep doing the right things. Keep doing your studies. Keep praying. Keep fasting. Keep worshiping. Because there's coming a day. It's going to be a harvest. So don't give up. Don't give in. God is faithful. Amen.